again, everybody. This is Ricky Cobb, and this is the Super 70 Sports Podcast. You may have recognized that song was I Just Want to Be Your Everything by Andy Gibb. And here at the Super 70 Sports Headquarters, I want you to know I'm settling for nothing less this year than being your everything. And I'm pretty sure that that may be the creepiest thing that I've ever said in my entire life. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, I'll settle for being uh, the podcast guy. How about that? I'm not going to stalk you. Uh, Really excited. Next week, we're going to be debuting the Super 70 Sports theme song. That's right. We're going to stop messing around with potential licensing issues. I'm not going to fool with that anymore. We don't want the... uh, uh, Andy Gibb Estate uh, coming after us here and uh, suing me back into the Stone Age. So next week, really exciting, we're going to debut the Super 70 Sports theme song. So uh, reason enough that you should tune in. My guest next week, also Major League All-Star Gold Glove Award winner, Ellis Valentine. So you won't want to miss that. But let's get to today's show. My guest today is Jeff Perlman, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, Jeff has put together quite a career. Uh, He's written six books uh, as of uh, this uh, recording, although his seventh book is on the way, slated for a release, I believe, in early November. Uh, Jeff's first book was called The Bad Guys Won, about the 1986 New York Mets, one of the most memorable teams in baseball history, really. Uh, A terrific book. Uh, His second book was Love Me, Hate Me, which was a biography of Barry Bonds. And uh, I can't speak for you, but I'm a little more in the uh, hate camp on that one. I'm going to guess that a lot of you are as well. Uh, His third book, Boys Will Be Boys, chronicled the early 1990s. Uh, Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl uh, dynasty where they won three Super Bowls in four years and did it with a a lot of contention between Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson and of course Aikman and Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin and all those guys. Uh, Just a great book. Uh, His fourth book was The Rocket That Fell to Earth about Roger Clemens and his fifth book was a biography of Walter Payton called Sweetness and uh, that's a book that uh, we'll uh, get into some of the uh, negative reaction that people had to that book, although uh, uh, those of us who've read it, uh, I think the general consensus is it's quite a terrific book. And Jeff's most recent work uh, is Showtime, uh, which chronicles the story of the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers, who of course won five world championships led by Magic Johnson. So lots of tremendous material that uh, Jeff has written about uh, uh, expertly uh, over the course of the the past decade or so. And so I'm hoping that we'll get into all of that. So uh, no point in uh, me yakking around any further. Let's get right to it and get Jeff on the line. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, best-selling author Jeff Perlman. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you know, big fan of yours. Uh, I've been reading your work uh, going back many years now, and and going back to I guess the subject matter that for for me at least made you a household name, uh, which was the 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 John Rocker. Uh, piece that you did for Sports Illustrated, and I know you've probably answered uh, a million questions about that, so I'll make it a million. I've never been asked. <laughs> I've never been asked. Well, I'm nothing if not intrepid, you know. <laughs> I'm impressed you dig. You dug to find out that I wrote that one. I did. You know, I thought to myself, mm-hmm, you know, what could I ask this guy that uh, you know that would really I get no one else. <laughs> Well, you know, that the thing that strikes me as interesting about that is not so much the fact that, that John Rocker made these idiotic statements, but that at that time, uh, certainly, you know, you, you were you were not known by by most people. And, and, you know, you built a name for yourself in the in the, you know, uh, past 17 years or whatever it's been since that as a young journalist uh, who uh you know, was still making a name for yourself. You weren't that far removed from writing at the Tennessean, uh, I don't believe, at that time. What was it like to kind of have something that took off and became this national 
story and a very kind of controversial thing that early in your career? So it was, um, it was like a combination of things. It was, uh, it was definitely awkward and it was definitely uncomfortable. And if you, uh, you go back and actually look, I did, as that happened, I did very, very little media, even though I got hit up by tons of media. Um, because you just like, you know, I was always raised with this idea that, um, you're not supposed to be a part of the story. Like you're the writer. So you're, you write the story, but you're not supposed to be part of the story. And all of a sudden you write something and you are in, you know, all of a sudden you're part of it. And for me, that was very sort of weird, uh, turf to be in. And, um, on the one hand, I, I think like being totally honest, like everyone has an ego, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden your people you went to high school with, who you haven't heard from for years are like, you know, calling you up or, you know, Holy cow, the rocker guy was the rocker guy. You know, the rocker guy. And I lived in New York, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like it did me harm in New York. Um, but I would say overall, more than anything, it was uncomfortable. Like, I did not like um, feeling like I was in the spotlight. I didn't like, I, I hated people saying, like, oh, you did it to that guy. Or you, even if you said it as a good thing or a bad thing, you sure right. did it to that guy, or that guy sure got his. I always hated that because I never, um, I wasn't, I didn't write the story for that reason. I didn't. I was never happy, like I never rooted for his demise. I didn't like him. I think he's kind of a bad guy, but mm-hmm. you don't want someone like, you don't want someone's career to be hurt because of a story you wrote. Like, that's not why you, you do this job for a living. So even when he was in the aftermath, when he was uh, suspended and he was demoted and he pitched poorly, I mean, I think people had the, had the idea, understandably, that I would be happy or, or you know, felt vindicated or something. And the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is, and I felt really bad for him. Yeah. Over the years, he's just been a jackass. But I've never rooted against him. I don't wish for bad things that happen to that guy. So, I don't know. The whole thing was very weird. Very weird. What's going through your mind in the moment? Is there, is there a part of you that's thinking to yourself, like, is, is this guy... Is this, I mean, did you know, like, right as the guy's saying this, like, oh, oh geez, this is... He's he's dropping something really really bad in my lap right here. Well, it's interesting. I actually, um, it's not like you know, it's not like my favorite story I wrote, and it's definitely not the best story I wrote. No, it's not average run of the mill story overall, um, writing wise. But the thing that I always, I guess, in hindsight, I've kind of felt good about is that all the while when I'm driving around with him, and he's uh, he's talking and he's spewing and he's angry and blah blah blah. Um, I never like argued with him. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like the guy's saying all this stuff that you disagree with. You know, I'm like this liberal Jewish guy from New York, raised to be as open-minded as I can be, diverse, best friend growing up black, worked with a lot of gay coworkers, good friends of mine in college. You know, uh, you know, just like across the board, kind of was raised with a very diverse sort of appreciation of diversity. And this guy's going off on everything you kind of disagree with. And I never, it wasn't my, I just never thought it was my place to debate him or argue him or anyone I'm covering. Like, you're there to find out what makes these people tick. So I was definitely aware of what he was saying. I was definitely aware of how ridiculous it was. And I don't think I knew the impact the story would have. I don't, I don't think I knew the, the amount of buzz it would generate. I wasn't thinking of that. But the one thing looking back that I'm kind of, uh, I guess, impressed by young Jeff Froman, I was only 27 at the time. I'm impressed that I didn't like, I didn't stick my nose in, in his talk, that I just let him talk right. and let him say how he felt without being like, well, you know, what I really think is, like, that would have been the worst thing I could have done. So I, I think that's, for a young journalist, that, that's pretty good, actually. You know, I wonder, and certainly I understand that John Rocker was a young guy himself, and he wasn't in the major leagues because uh, uh, of his self-awareness or his ability to uh, communicate uh, thoughts articulately. But uh, where does he rate? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time now. Uh, you've got uh, six books under your belt and another one that's, uh, I, I suppose, uh, com- coming out this fall. And I think you're already working on on another book now. I mean, where where does Rock, and obviously you've done lots of pieces uh, uh, outside of your uh, book career. Where, where does he kind of rate in the in the lacking uh, a filter uh, <laughs> aspect of things? I mean, do, do you encounter uh, oh, many athletes? No, just number one. Yeah. He's number one. There are very few guys. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. I almost want to say to his credit, like, 
Guys are very, very – you. I mean, if you talk about active athletes, I'm not talking about retired guys or, or too young and dumb to know. I'm just, active ball players of any sport, um, it's very rare. I mean, the reason that story made was such a kind of bombshell for the time was that it's so rare that guys speak out like that. It's just, you know, most yeah. guys – first of all, most guys don't think the way he did. So, so that's rare in and of itself. I mean, yeah, there are racists and there are homophobes or whatever in sports, but – very few to the extreme, I think, that Rocker is. And um, and even if they are, most guys just have the awareness not to say it, you know, and to, to sing a familiar tune. So I've never had a guy, I've had guys open up, and I've had retired athletes open up, but I've never had a guy sort of in his prime like that to spew away. I mean, that's very rare. There was nothing I did. People are like, oh, that was a great story. Like, I didn't really do anything. I just sat there and listened to the guy. That's not, not such a skill. Right. No, I, it, it makes, uh, it, you know, he certainly makes Kurt Schilling look, uh, you know, b- b- like a bastion of uh, political correctness. I mean, there's no comparison. Yeah. Um, but and it's funny. I thought a rocker, thought a rocker a lot with Schilling because, um, I didn't like that ESPN got rid of Schilling. And again, I disagree with everything Schilling said too, but if you're going to put guys out there and you're going to, and you want them to be on Twitter and you want them to be in the media, you cannot expect that they're all going to share your beliefs or that they're even all their beliefs are going to be up-to-date or modernized. You're talking about a world of professional sports that tends to sort of lag behind society when it comes to uh, enlightenment. Uh, guys are pretty sheltered. You know, a lot of them have grown up in a very conservative environment, socially, not talking about politically. So I didn't like how Rocker was suspended. I didn't really like how Schilling was suspended. Like, he's out there. You're putting him out there. You know he's very conservative. Not that. That must have been an enlightened guy. What do you expect? Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of when they they hired uh, Rush Limbaugh for the for the NFL show, and then yeah, he goes on right. the air and he's Rush Limbaugh, and suddenly it's like they're surprised. You hired Rush Limbaugh, you know. Um, I yeah. you know I, I want to ask you about this documentary that that you've put together, which is just entertaining as heck. Uh, uh, Book horror <laughs> is the name of this. Can, can you talk to me uh, about the genesis of uh, of putting this documentary together and and for uh, the uninitiated, uh, t- tell them what a book horror is. Yeah, so I um I just had the uh, the displeasure of wrapping up my master's degree work. I uh, congratulations, I by the way. I know, I know, no, I know that that's uh, it's not, it's not fun grinding to the finish line on on a master's degree. I know. So. No, congrats. Actually, I hated the whole process. I hated everything about it, but I enjoyed my final project. So for the final project, you could that there were a lot of options, and I, I decided I was going to do a documentary about being a book whore. And a book whore is, you know, you write the book, and I think a lot of people probably presume if they even think about it that. Uh, the hardest part of being an author or being in this business is writing the book. And I always think, like, in many ways, the hardest part is after the book comes out or right before the book comes out when you basically have to sell your soul to sell the book. And, I mean, I've done so much stuff in my life. I'm kind of shameless when it comes to it. I mean, I always print out, like, 5,000 flyers, and I'll walk through the stadium parking lots, putting them on cars, handing them out to people, um... You know, you do book signing or three people show up. <laughs> you do any radio show, any blog, any, any, I mean, anyone who wants to talk to you about your book, sure. You know, I move books. I moved my book today. I was in a Barnes and Noble today, no joke. And uh, my books were in a crappy section in the sports area. <laughs> and I moved them up to the bestseller area. I mean, I do it almost instinctively. So I wanted to do a documentary about being a book whore. And all authors, most authors, have their stories about crazy. I mean, my favorite was... Uh, a good friend of mine, John Wertheim, who works at Sports Illustrated, he had a book come out about Indiana basketball, and uh, they sent him to a bookstore that no longer exists. <laughs> like, he showed up and the bookstore had closed six months earlier. Another friend of mine, Chris Farley, he went to a uh, Pat Croce, the old Sixers owner, owns a owns a pirate museum, and Chris had a book out that related to pirates, so he stood outside the museum dressed as a pirate, handing out flyers for his own event. I mean... <laughs> So we all have this stuff, and I just wanted to do a documentary about the process of book whoring. It was a, 
was really fun, actually. I, guess. It, it, I mean, it really is terrific. I and you know, I, and it's funny enough. I, I think I think it's funny, but I, I'm uh, I'm in the process of working on my first book now, and I spent uh, I spent the first uh, uh, half of the documentary uh, questioning my life choices. <laughs> because, oh yeah. Because I was thinking, is this, oh my gosh, is this what is this what I'm in for? So uh, you uh, hopefully uh, uh, hopefully uh, I'll, I'll be book whoring myself uh, one day, Jeff. And uh, you know, after well, you seeing know the documentary, you work, <laughs> I, I just feel like I learned so from the hard. best. You work so hard. Well, thank you. I, I don't know. If I, <laughs> my dad was really good at it. You know, as I said, my dad wrote a book, and uh, we used to. You know, he self published a business book thirty years ago, and we were out. Uh, We'd go to the bookstore, the Walden Books at the mall, and we'd take his book, and we'd move it, and they'd move it back, and we'd move it, and we'd move it back. And I just, like, I complain about it, but it's kind of fun in a way, coming up with ways. And now with social media, one thing I think is with social media, I think any author has a shot. You know, even if you're self-publishing, with social media, you are your own publicist. You truly are. So there, there are a lot of ways to sell a book now. I uh, I got to tell you the, the the documentary starts up and uh, I I I, th- I, th- I hope that I'm selling the documentary by by saying this but, it, but it starts and I think to myself uh, oh oh no not another documentary that starts with a, uh, a old naked guy playing piano you know how many how oh many of God, the, how many I of know. these have I said where did you find and right. what's this guy sweet pie <laughs> yeah where boss. Sweetie Pie Weiner. Why? Where? Where did you find Sweetie Pie? And uh, it, it, what was going on with this guy? For, because for, for those of you that have not seen the documentary, uh, this this guy is I think seventy three years old uh, and naked, apart from I guess what you described as sort of like a, a hacky sack bag over his uh on his penis on, on his penis I, and i have no idea how I, and also I, I how did he i mean how did that stay on there i mean maybe that's maybe some questions are better was, uh, not, not asked but it, it was kind of like a bag with a rope <laughs> tied around the shaft i guess is the, I oh my God. um he um that was like pure i was driving back. i was working on this thing and i hadn't gotten much done and i was driving back from arizona to california and um I was like, I really need, I was just driving back. I literally was driving from Arizona, California for a story I worked on. And I thought, I really need a bookstore owner. I really want to interview a bookstore owner. And I did a Yelp search for the nearest bookstore. And it didn't say anything about it. It just said, Reader's Oasis Bookstore. And I said, you know what, I'm going to stop there and see. And I walk in, and there's a woman behind the counter, fully clothed. And I say, do you own this store? And she goes, no, he does. And she points, and there's Sweetie Pie, totally naked. I'm like, what? And, uh... He starts talking, and I tell him, like, I'm an author, and I'm doing this thing. Can I interview you? He's like, yeah. And he was talking, talking. He's like, you want me to play piano? I'm like, yes. And uh, <laughs> that's the opener of the thing. He was awesome. And, you know, he was really talented, too. It wasn't like some hack. I could clearly play the piano. Yeah, know? yeah, he he could really play. And I, and I have to admit, after I watched this, I, I, I Googled the guy. And among other yeah. things, uh, he claims... He claims that he coined the phrase "fuck them if they can't take a joke." So yeah, yeah the, he told me that. Too. Okay, maybe he did. that's probably what he leads with everybody he meets. But uh, of course, if yeah. he, of course if it's a true story, I'd probably lead with that too. You know, that's yeah, his stamp on the culture. Yeah, that's just just awesome. But uh, so 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 let me ask you. You know, you you've written six books that that are out there for for consumption right now, and I kind of was wondering for you. I mean, are, 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 I suppose in some sense your books are kind of like kind of like your offspring and uh you know parents claim that they love all children equally but privately sometimes we admit that we don't or at least we have times where the uh, pecking order kind of shifts around i mean of the six books that 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 are out there um for you kind of what is your hierarchy i mean what 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 are the ones that that you're most proud of i can give you a ranking um I would say I love both my kids equally. I actually do. So I feel good about that. <laughs> um, but I would say um, my favorite is Sweetness. My second, so Sweetness is the Walter Payton book. My second favorite is um, probably Love Me, Hate Me, which is the Barry Bonds book. Mm-hmm. My third favorite is Boys Will Be Boys, a cowboy book. My fourth favorite is Showtime, the Laker book. My fifth favorite is The Bad Guys One. Um, and my sixth favorite is the Roger Clemens book. But I will tell you, I have to say, I was reading uh, an interview recently with Phil Collins, and 
they asked him about the song Studio. You know the song Studio? Oh, absolutely. Studio, Studio. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's yeah. my jam. Yeah, exactly. I love that song. And they asked him about it, and he was ripping on Studio. He was saying how much he hates Studio. And I was thinking, like, I think a guy, I'm not saying I'm Phil Collins in any way. <laughs> I feel like someone who puts his stuff out for public consumption doesn't do himself much good by ripping his own product because somewhere out there is some guy who loves the Roger Clemens book. Right. I said it's my least favorite. So right. they all have their virtues. It's just you were, I was at different stages in my life when I wrote different ones and kind of understood the process better. And the Clemens one, the reason it's my least favorite, I was working on it and um, we found out, maybe I had five months to go, we found out that another group of reporters were doing a Clemens book as well. Mm-hmm. And my publisher actually called and said, can you get this in four months early or five months early? And I really scrambled to finish that book. So there are parts of it that I wish I could have had more time to complete. Well, I'll tell you, I was going to kind of go through these chronologically, but, the, but you know, the heck with it. Let, let's jump around. I'm, I'm not known for my organizational skills. Uh, let's talk about sweetness because that, of all your books, you know, and you go into it in, in, in book horror, uh, that's the one that, uh, you know, rubbed some people the wrong way and there was a backlash, uh, against you, you know, my, Ditka, uh, you know, made comments, of course, without having read, uh, the book, uh, that Michael Wilbon wrote a, wrote a fairly scathing, uh, uh, column about it among others. And, uh, you know, what was it like experiencing, because Sweetness was, I believe your, your fifth book. Uh, you know, you're obviously well established by this point, and and uh, you know you're not intending, I'm sure, uh, knowing uh, of you as I do, to uh, do anything inflammatory, and yet you kind of walk into this hornet's nest with some of the uh, revelations about Peyton's personal life. Uh, how much did that catch you off guard? And you know, in any way, does that sort of taint the experience for you? Uh, of the book because of this, uh, you know, very, very negative, uh, you know, reaction that it received. Right. So it's, um, it's actually really interesting. Like, let's say, I like Peyton, for example. Um, it turns out he had a mistress, right? And uh, his marriage for the last 10 years wasn't, wasn't very real. And so when you find something like that out, like you're researching a book and you find that stuff out, it's like you have a completely, you have a very mixed reaction. Because on the one hand, as a guy who's been reporting on someone for a long time, right, you, you really dig into this guy. You really, you want to find out everything about someone. On the one hand, if I'm being totally honest, there's like some kind of excitement over it. And maybe that's, maybe that's crappy. But there is. I think it's so understandable. Part of this. Yeah, I think it's understandable. Yeah. So on the one hand, yeah, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just found this, blah, blah, blah. Or, Yeah. And then, um, but then on the other hand, so it's like one of the things I think people really misunderstand about this business is there's a belief that scandal sells, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not true. Scandal gets a book attention, but it's generally not a very long-lasting attention, and oftentimes it's a very negative attention. So if people, you know, like people, I have a book on Brett Favre coming out. Well, people love Brett Favre. More people love Brett Favre than hate Brett Favre. So if all of a sudden people think this is going to be a destroyed Brett Favre book, um, they're going to lose interest quickly. Because a lot of people, most people don't want um, the luster taken off of their athletic superstars. Right. And with, with Peyton, I mean, really what happened is the excerpt, there was an excerpt that came out before anyone had a review copy of the book, which was unusual. Usually it doesn't happen that way. Usually uh, writers have review copies by then. But this, this for that book, no one had a copy. It was just the SI excerpt. So the excerpt comes out, and there was no one who could say, wait a second, if you read this whole book, this isn't what this book is. Or if you read this whole book, it's a really balanced book. Um, so I really got blindsided by the negativity, and it, it stung in huge, huge ways, because I think it was a very fair book. And I think, actually, most people walk away with a very positive take on Walter Payton, um, and I never got, I think I got maybe a handful, a small handful of people who actually read the book and then told me they hated the book. Because otherwise, people, people, I got a lot of apologies from people who said, you know what, I jumped the gun. 
But then once I read the book, that was a very, very common thing I got. Right. And I always kind of appreciated that. I, so. I, I mean, it, it's got to I mean, Peyton is... I think the problem, as much as anything, probably is the fact that that you know your subject was deceased, and therefore, to some degree, sainted. You know, if, yeah. if you're writing about even a popular figure, I mean, I, you know, even if you did, even if there was something in the in the in the farm book theoretically that would you know rub his fan base the wrong way, I I wonder if it would be as severe, given that you know you're writing about a guy who is in the here and now. And who we certainly, at least in Favre's case, you know, people may like him, but uh, he, he definitely—I don't think anybody thinks he's a saint. And you know, Peyton, yeah. I think, was lionized in the way. You know, that—that's got to be sort of dangerous subject matter in a sense, in terms of playing with uh, the, the emotional reactions that you could potentially receive. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I also think, like you said, you know, Peyton. So Brett Favre, like, there's nothing. I don't think there are that many things that could shock you about Brett Favre. You know what I mean? Like, if you found out tomorrow, and he wasn't, let's say you found out tomorrow Brett Favre was doing coke for a short period of time. And to be clear, he was not, by, to my knowledge, in any way, shape, or form. But if you found that out, I don't think anyone would be like, holy cow, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. I don't think people would be, but like, because, because also he played in a later era than Walter Payton. And like, we knew more about these guys because of social media, because of just all the, all the media, the nonstop media. And, you know, Peyton, you know, a lot of his career was pre-ESPN. A lot of it was when ESPN was kind of finding itself. You know, not every Bear game was on national TV. Um, he usually played for crappy teams. And also, he had this just, like, it was a very, like, two-dimensional um, understanding of who he was. Like, no one really knew about him behind the scenes. Nobody knew what kind of guy he was. And like you said, use the word sainted. I mean, he really was sainted. And the problem is, none of us are saints. We all have our stuff, you know. And right. uh, the line I used, the line I used at that time a lot was, "People love the idea of a definitive biography until it's definitive." <laughs> you know, I really feel yeah. like that. I think that's true. You know. So. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's a great point. I, I you know, you've written uh, you've written several books that are that are biographies. You've written several books that are about. Uh, you know, particular sort of uh, uh, great teams or, or, or dynasties. Um, how, how different is it when you approach a biography as opposed to a book like uh, Showtime or, or Boys Will Be Boys? Um, Why well, I, uh, I enjoy writing biographies more than I do team books um, because I like seeing the life progression. You know, like uh, like just having finished Five recently. Like I love following him from his boyhood and nowhere, you know, to kill Mississippi to being the last guy offered a scholarship by Southern Miss to seeing him show up there as a nobody and, you know, emerge out of nowhere. I love seeing him. I love like his year in Atlanta as a rookie when he was just a complete screw up. And then the trade to Green Bay and all of a sudden he's in Green Bay. And, and I just love progressions of life and seeing how a guy adjusts to aging to different characters coming along. And when you're writing a book, like it's, I found this, and then when I wrote The Bad Guys One, my first book about the 86 Mets, it's very easy to get into the trap of, and then they played the Padres in the three-game series, and, <laughs> you know, Darryl Strawberry hit two home runs, then the Dodgers came to town, blah, blah, blah. Like, those are the worst, really those are the worst books, by the way. They are the worst. Yeah. You know, those are the worst books. Nobody wants to read, I don't want to read those either. So it's, um, with, a, with a book about a team, it's, it's really hard uh, to not do that. And I try not to. You try to make them, they have to be very character-driven. And, you know, when you're writing about a, a guy's life, you have all these people who just come. It's more because people come and go. So you have an endless stream of characters. You know, you have the college teammates come, and then they vanish, and you never hear from them again. And then for one year, you have the, all these guys in Atlanta, you know, and Favre's a rookie, and you have that perspective. And so I kind of like, I like the lecture. And like with Walter Payton, I really enjoyed, although it was tragic in many ways, like life after football. Mm-hmm. And all these people who came across me decided to become a race car driver. And, you know, um, guys just vanish off the face of the earth and you move on to different people. It's kind of fun that way. I mean, I believe the Favre book, is it, it's slated for November. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, November 1st, I think. You know, if you, if you, if you want to you know, give, give me a little tease here. I mean, what's something, that you, what's something you learned about Brett Favre during your research that, uh, that made an impression on you or surprised you? Well, I didn't know that much about him. You know, I knew as much as any, like, average fan. So, 
you know, like, uh, I mean, I think what's good. Like, all right, I'll give an example, like what I really love. I kind of touched on this, but like, he's in high school and he's playing at Hancock North Central High in, in Mississippi. And his dad is a coach. So Irv Favre is the head coach. Brett's a quarterback for the last, he had Mono as a sophomore, so he didn't play as a sophomore. Then junior and senior, he was the starting quarterback. And you have this guy with this nuclear-powered arm. I mean, he really, he always had a nuclear arm. And all his teammates from high school were like, man, he could throw the ball. But his dad didn't believe in throwing the football. So you have Brett Favre as your quarterback. You're the dad. You know this guy. And you have a guy who's going to go down as one of the 10 greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. And Favre probably threw four to five times a game in his two years as a starting quarterback. His man. dad just wouldn't allow it. So then the best part is he um, – so now Brett's a, Brett's a senior, and nobody's interested. He cannot get a sniff of a college offer anywhere. Um, and some coach, some high school coach – so basically Southern Miss, um, they had a new guy recruiting. One of their, coach, one of their coaches was, uh, was, was the new recruiter. And he, he, he wasn't familiar with Mississippi, and he was late on the job. And some high school coach is like, yeah, you should uh, – there's this quarterback down in the kill. And he has some flavor. He doesn't throw very much, but the guy has a crazy arm. And he was on nobody's recruiting list, and nobody knew anything about him. So this, the guy from Southern Miss goes down, and he talks to Irv, Brett's dad. And he's like, I need to see your son throw in a game, though, and you guys never throw. And Irv's like, I'll tell you what, I'll have him throw. This weekend he's going to throw. So the, 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 the Mark McHale is the name of the coach. He goes to the game. <laughs> and Irv has him throw four times. He throws four passes in the game. And afterwards, he's like, so what do you think? And he's like, man, you didn't, he didn't throw the ball. And he's like, all right, if you come next week, you'll see. And he comes again, and Favre still doesn't throw the ball. Like, this guy, Irv Favre, just couldn't get out of his own way. And finally, I don't know what happened. I don't remember, but he, uh, he saw him throw, like, one pass that just dazzled him. And Southern Miss had a bunch of people drop out at the last minute. And so they offered that fire they were like well we can always make him a linebacker or safety so literally like wow. it's not like this just doesn't happen anymore like it doesn't happen where guys that hidden and he turns out to be one of the greats of all time so he was i just think it's really cool i love that stuff much more than like the scandal or any kind of concert i love finding the origins i love the origin stories they're really cool that's remarkable you know that sounds like something that would have happened in the 40s it's just not, exactly. you know, it's not that long ago, and yet you look back to those days, and I mean, it. I guess what we're going on close to thirty years since he was coming out of uh, high school now, I guess, or so, somewhere in that range. Yeah, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, we're, thirty years. We're, we're getting old. Uh, yeah, I want to ask you about the first book, uh, uh, the, the Bad Guys One. I I've been terrified of Kevin Mitchell ever since I read that book. Just the, just the. He's really a nice guy. Actually. Is he really? What, what was the the, great. the 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 cat story? What was up with that? Because that you know, I haven't read the book in a few years, but that's the that's the image that stuck with me from that book for whatever reason. Yeah. To be clear, I first learned about that from uh, so Bob Clappish, who's a really good writer, wrote. Dwight Gooden had an autobiography come out maybe 15, 20 years ago called Heat. And Gooden first told the story of that one time he said Kevin Mitchell was insane. One time he came over to his house and he grabbed a cat and he sliced the kid's, cat's head off with a kitchen knife. And that was in that book, and that book had just come out. That's so, a bad. That's a bad house guest, Jeff. Yeah, it's a bad. House. <laughs> Not good. Not good. You do it. Do it to the gerbil. <laughs> right. So, um, right. So, so I guess I I sat down with Mitchell out in California, and I was like. Um, I got to ask you about this story that Dwight Gooden told. And he goes, I won't curse, but he's like, F Dwight Gooden. That's, how the hell am I going to cut a cat's head off with a kitchen knife? That guy's just lying, blah, blah, blah. And he said, um, my favorite thing is he said, I said, well, have you ever confronted Gooden? And he's like, no, but I'm going to see him in a few weeks in New York at a signing, and I'm going to say something. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So he, uh, he went to the signing, and they were both at the signing. And afterwards, I went up to Mitchell, and I was like, so what did you say to Dwight? And he's like, eh, I just decided not to say anything. We're all good. And I was like, what? You were like, at this guy. You know, I don't actually, um, I think it's not true. I think the story is probably not true. I actually think 
Mitchell was a lot more sane than good in the strawberry at that point in time. So. <laughs> All right, that makes me feel better about Kevin Mitchell. I, you yeah, know, it, okay. you know, it's interesting to me. One of the things, uh, you know, and I'm a college professor by by day, and I, I'm, I'm working on a book about uh, baseball in the in the 1970s, and I've interviewed over 50 guys. But one of the things that struck me going into this, and I guess I've gotten over this a little bit, you know, just through talking to to so many ex-players, but I think there was still that part of me that kind of held these athletes up on a pedestal, you know, kind of like, be careful, you you may not want to know what guys are really like. Like, when you first got into uh, journalism, particularly sports journalism, was that any kind of a, a obstacle for you, like, the separating, like, the the part of you that had been a sports fan growing up and whatever with, you know, now being a guy that, you know, Mike Ditka says that he would spit on if he if he met him and you know stuff like that because I would think to some degree that kind of ruins that kind of ruins Mike Ditka <laughs> for you. You know what no. I mean? I, I mean, what's that like being kind of you know meeting guys, having guys who don't like you, having you know negative experiences with guys? I mean, is that something that uh, you know you shrug off early on, or you know how do you deal with that part of it from a from a just the standpoint of you know somewhere inside you obviously you're 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 a fan just like the rest of us yeah i would say actually um it's kind of weird i feel like i kind of made a decision i wasn't going to be a fan anymore and you know you'll have journalists say you have some journalists say well you can still be a fan and others say you have to be a fan or blah, blah. you have to be a fan of the game and i am a fan of the game but I just decided at some point I wasn't going to root for a team anymore. And I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to cheer. I was just going to be a journalist. And I still love baseball and I still love sports. But I don't like, I just stopped taking it personally when teams lost. Mm-hmm. I stopped. Uh, I just stopped. I just decided to stop. And it actually wasn't very hard. Um, I don't love when people get mad at me. I really don't. I don't like it at all. I, I Even my personal life. I don't love that stuff. I hate my Mike Dicka saying he'd spit on me. I didn't like that. Gave me no joy. John Rocker being mad at me gave me no joy. Uh, Clemens hated the Clemens book. I wasn't thrilled by that. Um, Emmett Smith didn't love the Cowboy book. I wasn't. He ripped me on ESPN while I was on a panel with him on ESPN. Um, I don't love that stuff. It never gets. It never gets easy. But I just think overall, I'm not saying I'm there. I'm not saying I'm in their class at all. But like, I look at like the great biographers in sports and otherwise, you know, but if we even were talking about sports, like David Moranis, uh, Richard Ben Kramer, DiMaggio, Lee Montville, like you don't go into this, you don't go into writing biographies to be loved uh, or hated. You just go in to write a really good definitive book. And not everyone's going to like that. You know, like it's just not, not everyone's going to like it. And you just, it sucks. And I hate when the time comes. Like, I hate getting those calls. I'll get them with Favre. I get them with every buck. Like, someone is always not happy. And I hate it. Like, I hate those calls. I hate that moment. I hate when you get the voice message from, hey, this is so-and-so. Give me a call. I read the book. Right. I hate that. I always hate it. I'm never used to it. I'm not. There are some guys. I used to watch a guy. When I was was covering baseball, there was a guy named Wally Matthews. Um, I think mm-hmm. now he's in radio, but I think he was in Newsday or the Post. Yeah, I where he was. yeah New- Newsday at least for Man. for a while. And he was so confident, and he would like walk into a room, and if a player was mad at him, he didn't care. You know, he just had that thing about him. And I always thought Bob Clappis, who I really like, was was probably it's probably the same way. Like they just they're not intimidated. And I'm not that guy. Like I don't I don't love having enemies. I don't love the inevitable phone calls and texts and whatever. But I also like. I just can't be one of these guys who like writes fiction or like writes love notes to athletes. Like I'm writing a biography on you. That's what I do for a living. And you're not going to like everything in it. But I think at the end, hopefully you're going to say that was fair and that was uh, honest and that was accurate. Okay. So your second book, Barry Bonds, um, what was Bonds reaction to, to the book? You know, you mentioned that Clemens, Clemens didn't like it. Um, you know, what, what have you heard about, uh, uh, or from Barry Bonds about, uh, love me, hate me. See, Bonds is a smart guy. He's a horrible guy or he was, but he's a smart guy. He didn't say a damn thing. He never, I never got a comment from him. 
He wouldn't give me the pleasure of a comment. You know, like, that's the difference between him and Clemens. Bonds is about, Bonds probably has 150 IQ points on Clemens. Bonds is a really smart, cagey guy. It doesn't mean he uses the power. You know, a lot of villains are smart, you know? True. Um, yeah, but he, uh, he would never, he never said a word about that. But never said a word about that book. And that was not a, uh, that was not a very glowing portrait of a man. But he never said a thing about it. Maybe to his credit. <laughs> so, so ten ten years on from that book, what's your you know what's your take on his legacy? Are you, are, are you surprised that that he took the uh, hitting coach job in Miami? Well, I'm surprised he was offered a hitting coach. <laughs> I'm surprised that he and Mark McGuire had hitting coach jobs in baseball. I know they were great hitters, and I'm sure they have things to teach young players. But I kind of feel like once you cheat, um, that should be it for you. You know, not in life, but I think. That's it for you in baseball. Like, you cheated. You cheated in a huge way. You cheated. 755 was the biggest record in baseball, if not in sports. And that was wiped out by a guy who clearly cheated to do it. So I'm not surprised he took the job. And I'm not saying he wouldn't. I mean, he's a really smart guy. I'm sure he's actually a pretty darn good hitting coach. But I, I can't believe teams would hire him. And also the way, the other thing that's weird is, like, I feel like he has a little Donald Trump thing, right? Like, I feel like part of Donald Trump's appeal to a lot of people is that he is a bully. And, like, mm-hmm. people respond to bullies, sometimes in a weird way where they acquiesce to the bully. And Bonds treated so many people so badly for years. People in baseball, fans, media, uh, executives with the Giants, teammates with the Giants. And you would think once he needed, once he needed help, nobody would even give a second look at him. But for some reason, you know, people are willing to forgive and forget and just, okay, Barry, we have a job for you here. So I'm shocked because he was such a bad guy to deal with. It surprises me. Yeah, the the, the the Brian Fisher story, I think it was in that book, is one that always really stuck with me. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, did he get blackballed? I mean, uh, because he was clearly, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, he wasn't bringing really any value except for with his bat, but... He still had like a, I think he had a 9.99 OPS his his last season. I mean, it, it, it was was there any type of blackball in there, or was it just 30 teams that individually decided that he was too much of a pain in the ass to to, to be worth it? Well, I mean, you, first of all, it wouldn't be 30 because he could only DH at that point. Right, He'd be talking half the league. Right, he wasn't going to play the outfield. He wasn't going to pinch hit. So, and I think um, I don't think he was blackball. Like I don't think there was a collusional effort to not have him play, but I think, you know, he would have been a whatever, 40-year-old DH, a 40-year-old steroided DH who's a pain in the ass. Like, the, it, there's just, there was very little, I couldn't, there weren't many good reasons to sign Barry Bonds. So, yeah, I don't think it was a, a collusional effort where everybody agreed. I just think, what the hell, why do we want Barry Bonds? He's a pain in the ass, it's not worth it. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Uh, so, so you're talking about Emmett, uh, who uh, had some not great things to say about boys will be boys, which is probably, I would say that one's probably my favorite uh, of your books. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that one was just terrific. And I and and I and I will say, uh, you've you've uh, you've made me feel better about Kevin Mitchell. I've I've conquered that phobia. But I'm telling you right now, I don't want to I don't want to sit anywhere near tra- uh, Charles Haley. Uh, in, in a oh, meeting, yeah. <laughs> all right. I, and, yeah. and and for anybody who hasn't read the first of all, if you haven't read Boys Will Be Boys, you know, get get on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever, and and, and get it now. If you're if you're an NFL fan, you'll you'll really enjoy it. But um, I, I'll, I'll it's your book. I'll let you tell it. But will you talk about Charles Haley's uh, strange proclivities uh, for for those uh, who uh, who are who are not yet aware? Well, he used to like to masturbate in the uh, locker room in front of other players. And he would just sit there under a towel, you know, doing his thing in front of other teammates. And my, it's kind of funny, like you report these books and you find something out and then someone else confirms it and it kind of grows and grows. And I, I actually remember, there's, any, there's a reason, like I call, I try to call, I mean, I, tr- I really try to call a lot of people. So I don't just call, like when I'm researching a book on like the Cowboys, you wouldn't just call. Emmett Smith and Jay Novacek and Aikman, you want to get deep into it. And I called, they had a defensive back named Scott Case who came over from Atlanta. And I was talking to Scott and he's like, has anyone told you about Charles Haley? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. And he's like, one day I was in a meeting 
and Haley's sitting behind me, and he's like, Scott, turn around. And Casey's like, shut up, Charles, I'm not turning around. We're in a meeting. Scott, you got to turn around. i got to show this to you. I'm not turning around. Scott, just turn around. And he turns around, and Haley has his penis extended on his desk. <laughs> you know, he's just like, but I will say, I will actually say, like, uh, so Haley has since definitely, I mean, just got in the Hall of Fame, which he was so overdue. And, you know, he, he really battled these bipolar demons for years. And uh, I, there's, a, there's a part of me, a pretty big part of me, that wishes I knew that when I wrote the book. You know, because everyone, myself included, had a pretty good laugh at Charles Haley. And it is funny. And I'm not saying it's unwarranted or whatever. I mean, it's real. Behavior is real. But, like, you're talking about actually a legitimate mental illness that he was going through. So it does explain something that I did not know when I wrote that book. Um, Skip Bayless. Um, you know, of course, yeah. go, going way back, you've got the Skip Bayless, uh, you know, basically, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, fueling the fire or, or however you want to look at it of the rumors about Troy Aikman's sexuality that went around for a long time. Uh, you know, having talked to all these guys and gone through this process, I mean, Skip has become like uh, <laughs> such a large, uh, you know, media presence over the course of the last decade or so at, at ESPN, and now he's moved on to, to Fox or whatever he's going to do now. Uh, what are your impressions of Bayless? Uh, what did those guys think of him? And and what's your take looking back on the? on the Bayless, uh, Troy Aikman rumor, uh, deal. Well, what he did was very, very wrong. There's no doubt about it. Um, he basically outed a guy who apparently was not gay and it wouldn't be right if he was gay. I think there's kind of feel like there are lines in journalism you don't cross and that's one of them. You know, like you don't out a guy and I guess you, you have to add that you especially don't out a guy if he's not actually gay. And I'm, you know, Skibanis is the only one who says Troy Aikman was gay and has never apologized or said he made a mistake or whatever. And he was, you know, he was pretty hated for doing that. Guys were really mad at him. Guys in the newspaper business were mad at him. He lost, he lost a lot of credibility. And I will actually, I'm not a fan of what he does on TV. He, he or Stephen A. Smith, I hate the yelling sort of nonsense, take up an argument for the sake of arguing. But I will say, in a uh, in a field that's increasingly hard to last in, uh, where they where generally like cheaper and younger, Trump's more expensive and older. Somehow Bayless has had this really tremendous second act. So while true, Very I don't true. like what he does, I mean, he really has. So I don't like what he does, and I don't think that was right what he did. Number one, it doesn't mean he's a bad guy. You know, I think in the past maybe I was even a little hard on him. It doesn't mean he's a bad guy. We all have our moments. I did so many crappy things when I was a younger writer. Horrible, embarrassing things that I I still regret to this day. Uh, so, in a way, I kind of come to admire his longevity and staying power. Because as, as I get a little older in this business, you start to see guys fade away. And that guy has lasted. No, he's 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 like a cockroach. I mean, he's going to be the last guy standing when 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 media is crumbling. It's 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 just going to be Skip Bayless somewhere, uh, you know, operating with a transistor in a basement. Um, talking about Tim Tebow. <laughs> talking about Tim Tebow. He'll still be convinced that uh, t- Tim just needs a just needs a fair shot. Um, you know, to, well, to add, let me let me ask you something here. I'll try to merge it into talking about Showtime. You know, when you're when you're starting a book, let, let's go back and let's say that you know you've decided you're going to write about the the Lakers dynasty. In terms of getting access, and, and you alluded earlier that you know you want to go deeper than just talking to the to the, to the star players and whatnot. And obviously, I I recognize the value in that, but. Um, I'm sure having access to the star players is is helpful, uh, at least to some degree. Um, going through these different projects that you've done, I mean, how how much access have you been able to receive with the guys that you really wanted? Are there some guys that you desperately wanted and couldn't get that you know made made the the, the process of writing the book a, a bit more difficult than it otherwise would have been? Yeah, well, every book, you can go down the line of my books. Good and Strawberry didn't talk for the bad guys one. I think one of them was in jail. Um, Bonds didn't talk for, for my Bonds book. However, I did. Ha- I had had a pretty extensive, uh, lengthy interview with him 
maybe a year earlier. Um, Cowboys, I didn't get Aikman, and I didn't get Emmett. Um, I did get Michael Irvin, though. I stalked him out of his Hall of Fame induction. <laughs> Clemens, I didn't get Clemens. Showtime, I didn't get Magic or Cream or Riley. Now, here's the thing, though, I have to say, because you, you could hear that and be like, oh, these books must suck. And I, I kind of learned this philosophy early on. Uh, the guys like Gooden and Strawberry were interviewed about the 86 Mets a million times. So there almost comes a point where they're telling stories of stories. Right. It's almost like, do I even remember? There's a line in Everybody's All-American, the movie, um, where it was a Frank DeFord novel, where he says, I can't even remember anymore if I'm telling stories or just telling stories about the stories, you know? And yeah. so guys like Strawberry and Gooden, Emmett Smith, like those guys have told their stories a million times. The odds that they give me anything amazing and revolutionary is pretty slim. I mean, it could happen, but slim. But then, give me Ed Hearn, the backup catcher. Give me Terry Leach, the long reliever. Give me John Anderson, who was caught up for six games. Uh, give me Rick Anderson, who was caught up to make an emergency start. Give me Stanley Jefferson and Sean Abner and Kevin Mitchell and Tim Tuffle. All these guys who haven't been asked about the 86 Mets in years, asked in any official way, who have never written a book, right. um, who have these takes and these stories, and were there for it all. I mean, they were just as important, uh, recollection-wise, as Gooden and Strawberry, and probably more so because they haven't been asked. So those guys are invaluable. And I always, I really, really, I'm not just saying this out of convenience. I think getting the superstars is a very overrated thing and getting the scrubs. Like, you'll read a lot of books where you read the acknowledgments, and the author will have interviewed 30 people. And, you know, three of them are the biggest stars on the team. And I always, I read that, and I usually think, uh, I don't know about this. Because if I'm writing a book about, like, the Super Bowl Redskins, well, you know, from Doug Williams' year, mm -hmm. well, yeah, you want to get Doug Williams, and you want to get whoever, but I really want to hear from Timmy Smith, and I want to hear from all the wide receivers, and the offensive lineman who never talked. So my general philosophy is, yeah, the superstars, it'd be great if I can get them, but what I really want is the backup catcher. Yeah, no, that 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 makes perfect sense to me. You know, even in my limited experience uh, doing interviews for the book that I'm working on, I I find that you 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 never know which interviews are going to be the really great ones. <laughs> you go you you're making a mistake if you go into an interview with anybody uh, with the expectation of well, you know, this is probably going to be mundane because. Sometimes it's it's where you would least expect it that you wind up getting great material. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think that you're that, that you know that point really resonates with me, even in my uh, 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 I guess a limited experience. I you know let let me ask you uh, uh, about this. You know who who are the guys? I mean, are there any guys that you've encountered through this that you know you you just thought to yourself, you know what what a what an incredibly pleasant, engaging, interesting person i mean who for you have been some of the guys through your, through your books that you know you've just you've just thought to yourself you know I, this is just this is just a smart you know f you know funny guy or whatever and you know I, I i like this dude oh man i've had tons and i always uh i feel like a few friendships always emerge like um the far book like i really like he played with a linebacker named niall diggs and it turns out niall diggs lives like a half hour from me out here in southern california he came to speak to my class and uh, earlier this year. He's just a really nice guy. He's a really nice, decent guy. And like from the Laker book, this is this is a first for me. But Michael Cooper's ex-wife, Wanda Cooper, has become a dear friend, and she was smart. Wives are very important. Wives can give you great stuff, and she was great. But she was also lovely, just like absolutely lovely. And then um, like with the Mets, their backup catcher was actually Ed Hearn. And Ed and I really developed a nice friendship after that book was over. And he's just a great guy. And, you know, every book, you, someone emerges who you like. Like Clayton Holmes was a cowboy defensive back. And Clayton, I've now been friends with Clayton for 10 years. And, you know, it's funny. Like, we're all guilty of, like, we focus on the negative a lot. And, you know, I can tell a million stories about how big of a jerk Barry Bonds was or Will Clark was or Rocker or whoever. But the vast majority of people you deal with in sports are good, decent, very normal people, just like you and me trying to make a living and, and last and put some food on the table for their kids. So 
I've met a lot of great people, mostly great people. Um, the the next book, uh, and you, I mean, and you are the, the Favre books on the way, and you're already at work on the next one, which I understand is going to be about the USFL. Um, which I think I know a lot of my followers uh, on Twitter uh, absolutely are going to be excited uh, about this book because anytime I post anything about the USFL, uh, you know, there's a tremendous response uh, and, and a lot of strong feelings still uh, about that league. Um, why the USFL? How did, how did you decide upon this as uh, as the next Jeff Perlman book? Wow, so this is my dream book, my dream sports book. I have two dream books, um, USFL and Tupac. And um, I, because uh, I'm 44, so I grew up, you know, we started in 83, so I was 11 years old. And I just remember, I don't even know why, but I just remember being so psyched by a new football league and the spring league and they had awesome helmets. And holy crap, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker? <laughs> and then, you know, Steve Young and like Jim, and like, Again, they had like snazzy uniforms and they did dances when they celebrated. And it just, I just remember loving the USFL. And in fact, my senior year at Nail Pack High School in New York, we all from my English class had to do a, we had to do a 20 page or longer thesis. And I picked the downfall of the USFL and mine was 40 pages. So <laughs> I'm like, and I remember calling the USFL offices and leaving messages. They started. They still had an answering machine at the U.S. of our office, but nobody ever called me back. And I just like, I just think it's like insane. It's like this three-year league where you had all these amazing, great players, and you also had these crazy, like, you had these crazy owners spending money they shouldn't spend, and you had like cities like San Antonio that couldn't possibly support a pro football team, and you had like guys coming out of jail to play, and it's it's like. It's just like a million zany, wacky, funky stories in one. And I always thought it would be a great book, but I couldn't get a book deal for it. And what I did, Houghton Mifflin is publishing Favre. Um, and it was them and another publishing company uh, who were most interested in the Favre book. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do Favre if you also let me do the USFL. And uh, so they gave me a deal on the USFL. I'm not making much for it. I don't have as much time as I usually do for other books. But it's an absolute one hundred percent labor of love. That's tremendous. That's just tremendous. I mean, I people forget. I, I think what a huge splash <laughs> they made at the time because I was all I, I was all, I'm forty four also. So yeah, the USFL came along right at the same same time in my life as well. And I mean Herschel Walker. I mean that was. <laughs> and if you're going to announce your 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 arrival on the scene, I mean I can't imagine a better way of having done it than than Herschel Walker. Uh, you know, coming back around to he who shall not be named, uh, who's uh, uh, running for president. Uh, how you know how how, how much do you uh, look forward or or, or relish uh, uh, writing about his role in the in the demise of the league? You know, it's actually it's so funny. So I hate Trump, right? I mean, I, I, I it's not good for book sales, but I don't care. Like, I can't look at him and listen to him and take him seriously I just can't but the uh, and you know the common narrative like if you saw Mike Tolan's 30 for 30 who killed the USFL yes you know Trump is the, is blamed he's blamed and he's blamed and he's blamed and it's not without reason but I will say this he was one you know that second year there were 18 teams so he was one of the 18 owners of that league they did not have to follow him like it was his idea to move to fall he had very selfish reasons he wanted an NFL team but they all, it wasn't like he wasn't the dictator of the USFL. They all had to follow him, and they did. So it's easy to blame Trump, and he definitely is, doesn't go without blame. But I feel like a lot of these guys have gotten off very easily when they were the lemmings who just followed along. You know, Trump was young. He was 37. He was a young owner. Um, he was kind of new money, so to speak. Uh, but somehow, he, just like you see him now, like he held a sway over people, and he convinced people, and he would bully and coerce, and I found this amazing letter that John Bassett, who was the owner of the Tampa Bay uh, Bandits, wrote to Trump at one point, where he said, he actually said, you're younger than me, you're stronger than me, um, but if you talk to people the way you did in our last week meeting, I will not hesitate to punch you in the face. <laughs> and, ba- and Bassett, by like all accounts that I've ever read, was a, everybody loved the guy. Everyone loved him. 
Yeah. But he hated he hated Trump. They all hated Trump. He was a bully. He was just a bully. And you know what? The thing that kills me is like, if you think about it, spring football is a pretty freaking good idea. And USFL, the problem is like, a lot of the owners just didn't have the patience you need when you're starting a new league. You know, they're all losing money. You're supposed to lose money. You know, like you're not going to make money. Two teams made money in the USFL. That's it. You're not going to make money starting pro football originally. So after one season, or midway through one season, they voted to expand from 12 to 18. And they didn't vote to expand because they thought it would be good for the league. They voted to expand because each team would get two, each team had to pay $2 million. So mm, you're right. these guys would get some cash relief. But it was like all of a sudden you had teams and markets that couldn't support it. And that was kind of the death knell for the USFL. All right. Well, I wanted I want to direct everybody to to jeffperlman.com, uh, where uh, you, you can learn more about what Jeff does. You'll you'll find the link to uh, my my favorite new documentary, Book Horror. Uh, you'll also find information about uh, all of Jeff's books. Uh, and, and but 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 I, it, the thing that I love the most about your your blog is is this incredibly unique interview series that you've had going for for quite a while now i know you're you're well up like past 250 i think or somewhere in that range now yeah. with this could you kind of tell everybody a little bit about that because it's a it's an interview series that, that that's a bit unlike anything else that that you that uh, you, you've probably ever seen yeah well it's uh, now it's become an addiction for me <laughs> it's uh it's called the quaz and i see it stands for quasi famous although it's kind of some of the people have, a lot of people have been famous, so that doesn't really work anymore. But I just call the clause. And um, I do every week. I do an interview every week, 10 questions, and then 10, 10 rapid fires. And what happened was uh, my kids, my kids are now 12 and 9, but a couple years ago we were really into the Wonder Years. And you can watch Wonder Years reruns on Netflix. And I was watching one day, and I was, uh, there was some episode where uh, Kevin Arnold had a girlfriend who was annoying. And I was like, I wonder what ever happened to the actress who played that girl. So... I Googled her. Her name was Wendy Hagen. And I was like, hey, what if I did a Q&A with you for my, for my website? And she was great. She's like, yeah, totally. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder if there are more girlfriends. So I started, like, looking up Kevin Arnold's girlfriends for the one years. I don't know why. And then I started, you know, I kind of know Tommy Shaw from Sticks. So I asked Tommy Shaw from Sticks if he would do it. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do Q&As with random people. So I've done, like, you know, the head of the American Nazi Party. I did Sean Green. Michael Dukakis was number 200. I've done people dying of diseases. I've done ministers. I've done ball players. I've done actors. Um, and it's just me asking them questions I'd want to ask them. You know, not like any kind of cliche, typical stuff. I try, I try to keep it funky. Uh, you definitely keep it funky. I, you know, one of my favorite bits is where you you have them rank in order how much they like just this list of random oh, yeah. random stuff you give them. Uh, I mean, you know, you might yeah. it, it might it might be you know sp- sp- spaghetti, Run DMC, <laughs> you know, hacky sack, you know, whatever, and you have them rate this dude, yeah. which I think is like you know I don't know it appeals to my sensibilities. I mean, do people do they generally get that? I mean, do you ever have somebody who's just like, you know, what the hell are you are you talking about? And they just don't, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people are like, this is kind of dumb. John Oates didn't answer it. I don't know why. John <laughs> I remember that. Come on, John Oates. Yeah. I expected better from I John Oates. I'm a huge Holland Oates fan. I know, I know. Um, I don't think he was being a jerk. I think he might have missed it. No, generally people are, people are pretty cool about it. You know, it's fun. I think people like, I just, I just think like... I'm not saying I'm, like, great or anything. I'm just saying, like, one response I get a lot from the people who I interview is they'll be like, ah, you know what, that was really, those are really interesting questions. And I do think what we've kind of done in media too often is we just go for the easy, easy. You know, we ask the easy questions, and, you know, we don't, we do our base amount of research, and we don't really, I always tell my journalism students, I teach out here at Chapman University, and I always say, like, you can never go wrong um, asking someone, like, what did that feel like? You know, like, we don't ask that enough. What did that feel like? So someone says, yeah, I hit a big home run, and, you know, I, hey, John, what about that home run? Yeah, it was great. I hit it to right field. Well, who'd you hit off of? You know, it was a cat, it was a curveball, it was a 3-2 count. Um, man, you've been swinging the back rate. Yeah, you know, I feel like no one's ever like, well, what does that feel like? I'm never going to experience what it's like to stand at the plate of Dodger Stadium facing a reliever throwing 98 from the left side. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that feel like? You know, like I have one actually coming out this week with Niall Diggs from the Green Bay, former Packer linebacker.
And I just asked him, like, what does it feel like to get jacked up in a game? Like, to get, what's your wor- what's the worst hit you ever took? Yeah. And what exactly does it feel like? I remember asking one guy that, and he said, like, he saw purple. You know, like, purple came over his eye color. And so, like, I just think, like, that's a question. Like, I'm always like, what did it feel like? Like, what yeah. does that feel like? What does that feel like? What does it feel like to dig up a body if you're a great digger? What does it feel like to run for president if you're like to And so I'd say that's the essence of the quads. It's like, what does it feel like to be you? You know? Yeah, no, I mean, that... not make me any money. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, simple but pr- but profound at the same time because I think I think most interviewers miss that. Uh, but yeah, the quad, the quad, it, it's a treat, you know, because you never know who's coming up, who's coming up next. And, but you know, they're, they're just invariably, uh, entertaining. So, uh, I, again, jeffperlman.com is, is the website. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Uh, he is the author of a half a dozen, uh, uh terrific books. Uh, and, uh, I'm sure, uh, that, uh, the, the Brett Favre book, Gunslinger, uh, great title, by the way, uh, is, 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 is gonna, is going to be yet another, and and the USFL book. I, I got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to. So, uh, you know, get keep cracking on that one, uh, Jeff. I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you so much. Ah, what a great conversation. My thanks again to Jeff Perlman for coming on today. I can tell you, if you haven't read Jeff's books. Uh, absolutely, you want to pick some of those up and read them, and pretty soon you'll have the entire Jeff Perlman Library. Uh, just one of the best at what he does going in the business today. I would really encourage you to go go to jeffperlman.com and give Book Horror uh, a watch because it really is terrific and gives you a lot of insight into the sometimes less than glamorous uh, world of being a big-time author. Uh, don't forget, my guest next week... Major League All-Star, Gold Glove Award winner, and a lot of people think the man with the greatest throwing arm in the history of Major League Baseball, and there's some pretty big competition for that title, Mr. Ellis Valentine joins me. We're going to have Ellis Valentine, we're going to have the debut of the brand spanking new Super 70 Sports Podcast theme song. It's going to be great stuff. Join me next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Thank you.